The following is message number two of the Southeast Blending Conference held in Atlanta, Georgia on the morning of March 30th, 2019. The title of the message is God's Eternal Purpose, Fulfilled by the Recovered Church. And the speaker is Brother Ron Kengis. The first aspect of our general subject is living an overcoming life. So let me review a little that we covered last night and add a little more. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Lord himself, the overcoming Christ, is speaking to us. And seven times he refers to those who are overcoming. But we need to be very exact in understanding what he says. He doesn't say, to the overcomers, I will give this reward. He says, to the one who overcomes. What John is doing, he's actually using a verb we may call it a participle as a noun. So an overcomer is one who is taking particular action in his spirit in a certain kind of situation to be victorious in and over that situation. He's not simply saying, you are now a certain person, you're an overcomer. No, a victor is someone who is victorious in a battle. An overcomer is someone who overcomes in a particular way. And I want to emphasize repeatedly that the Lord Jesus and only the Lord Jesus is the one who lived an overcoming life at every stage, in every situation, then ultimately on the cross, he destroyed the devil. He defeated the principalities and powers. He cast out the ruler of this world. He dealt with every negative thing in the universe. Then God resurrected him, the Lord was ascended and enthroned, and now this victorious Christ, the God-man Jesus, is on the throne with all authority in heaven and on earth. Yeah. And we will see eventually in this outline that his positive goal was to establish and build up the church as his body to become his counterpart. The Lord is, does not want any of us to try to be overcomers. It is actually a great turning point in our life personally when we actually finally stop and give up trying and instead open our being and allow the Lord 
to do everything and be everything to us. Revelation, the book, is a book on the overcomers. So we saw last night from chapter 5, the lion and the lamb on the throne is the Christ who has overcome. And in Revelation 3.21, the overcoming Christ said, Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who overcomes will sit with me on my throne. So let's allow the spirit to inscribe this into our being. The overcoming Christ in his ministry of intensification needs and desires to reproduce himself in the lives of his believers who are simply open to him and agree with him. Then he will dispense himself into us, work himself into us, make his home in us, constitute us with himself, all the while increasing our enjoyment of him, our experience of him beyond anything we ever imagined. And the issue of this is the more he is working himself into us, And the more we allow him to live in us, his overcoming life, then the more we will live an overcoming life, which is actually Christ living again in us. I'd like to mention briefly uh, two instances of a boat in a storm. The first is recorded in the Gospels. The Lord is in the boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee at night. A fierce storm is raging. Water is overflowing into the boat. Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping. He's sleeping. The disciples are not sleeping. They are wide awake. They are desperate. They expect they're going to perish. So they wake up the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, don't you realize we're about to be shipwrecked? We're going to drown. So then the Lord wakes up, rebukes the wind and the waves. So there's calm. Because he addressed the enemy behind the storm. Then the disciples are amazed. They're asking, what kind of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Then Jesus said to them, you of little faith. So at this juncture, I would like to give one very helpful definition of faith. I learned this from the book and the ministry entitled um, the book, The Kingdom. Faith is realizing who Jesus is. Just realizing who he is. 
So if they realized, yes, this really is a fierce storm. And the, the boat is out of control and waves are entering in and we're getting wet. We're not denying the environment, but the God-man Jesus is in our boat. And he's able to sleep, not like Jonah that went to sleep as a way of hiding, of running away. He's sleeping because he fully realizes that the sovereign God is in control, that he will fulfill his mission, not by drowning in the Sea of Galilee, but by dying on the cross. And so he corrected them, even rebuked them, by asking them, why do you have such little faith? So the other boat in the other storm is in Acts 27. And at least two God-men are on this boat, the Apostle Paul and Luke, the physician. Traveling with Paul, serving with him, and we believe caring for his health. Paul had many physical sufferings. And Paul's a prisoner under the control of a centurion whose job is to deliver him to Nero, to, the, to Caesar. And so they get on the boat, and Paul has the discernment. The sky is clear. The wind is calm. He said, men, I perceive this voyage is going to be rough. But they are trusting in the outward environment, and then they decide, no, we've got to get to our destination. And so they set sail. And then he can say to Paul, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, see, it's calm, it's clear. But when the storm came, Paul didn't retaliate by saying, yeah, yeah, to you. And this storm lasts for 14 days. To the point that they lost control of the ship, they didn't know whether it's day or night. And Paul is there with his physical infirmities, with all of them. Then at a certain point, there are about 250 people on the boat. He stands on the deck and he says, cheer up, everybody. I mean, doesn't that aggravate you? Some smiley person comes. You're in this. And then they smile and say, cheer up, be happy. Well, that's just the opener. Then he says, the God whom I serve sent his angel to me to confirm the word, you must get to Rome. You will get to Rome. And I will save you and everyone on the ship. So Paul told them, we're all going to be saved. We're going to lose the ship. And then he says, you haven't eaten for days. 
So then he takes up some bread and without shame openly blesses it and prays over it. And he says, you need to eat. Then again he says, cheer up. And, and their morale returns. And some are trying to escape. They're trying to lower a, a little boat. And, and Paul, he is the prisoner, the one with the lowest status. But he's actually, he's reigning in life. So he says to them, let go of that boat. If you get in there, you're going to drown. They obey him. So then the boat runs aground. It breaks in half. Then the captain says, everybody, Let's jump out of here. If you can swim, swim. If you can't, hold on to part of the boat. So Paul got thrown into the sea. He got soaked. He got to the shore. Then what happens when he gets on the shore? Uh, he's helping to make a fire. So he's gathering sticks. Then a snake bites him on the hand. It doesn't bother him. The natives are watching, and they say, aha, uh -huh, this man must be a murderer because fate allows him to survive the shipwreck, but now he will die. Paul shook the, the snake off. Nothing happened to him. And so the latest opinion poll was, no, he's a god. <laughs> and then the people there extend hospitality. They're very gracious. And Paul realized uh, a, a certain man who was a leader there was very sick. And Paul laid his hands on him and healed him. And many others came and Paul healed them. So eventually, when uh, the season changed and it was safe to travel and there was another boat, the people came and provided all that they needed for the next trip. There is a classic footnote in the recovery version at the beginning of chapter 28 telling us this is Jesus living again. The same Jesus that could sleep in the back of a boat in a storm was living again in the Apostle Paul. Paul is not a hero. He's a person who allows the Lord Jesus to reproduce himself in him and live in him. So that in one situation after another, he could live an overcoming life. Now last night I mentioned two aspects of overcoming. I would like to add one and make it clear, a little more clear, then we'll go on to the message for this morning. We read Romans 8.37 last night, where Paul says, In all these things we more than conqueror through him who loved us. And these things reflects back to verse 28, where Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
And we know from Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians, he surely suffered more than any other apostle. He mentioned how many times he was beaten with rods, he was stoned. He said, I was shipwrecked three times. So the shipwreck in Acts 27, that's shipwreck 1.4. He had three other shipwrecks. He said, one time I spent a day and a night in the water. I'm looking forward to talking to him. I wanted to ask him, how did you do that? You, could you swim? Were you treading water? So, he, so here he is all night long in the water. But in that situation, he can testify, I overcame in that situation. The Lord did not immediately extricate, that is, pluck me out. He left me in the situation for a while. Then he enabled me to victorious, to be victorious over it. Here I would mention a book containing conference messages by Brother Lee, which is especially precious to me. This in my own personal history with the Lord. It's the book entitled The Satanic Chaos in the Old Creation and the Divine Economy for the New Creation. And Brother Lee points out from the word, a thorough study, now Satan brings in chaos, disorder, confusion. But God's economy brings in life and peace and order and rest. And an overcomer is a believer who is victorious in the midst of the chaos. So we are living in an increasing situation, all of us. Our country is really in chaos. What's going on in Washington, D.C. is from one level of chaos to another. I've never seen anything like it in my whole life. And in our own environments, we have various degrees of chaos every day. Every time we drive in the city, we're in it to some extent. And the Lord is not about to just take us out of this. He will measure the length of it. That is for sure. But what is in his heart is that we allow him to live his overcoming life in all things. In all things. And it's effortless. Four years ago, to my surprise, I needed to go to an emergency room for serious swelling in my right knee, and then it spread to my left knee. But when I got there, they said, they paid little attention to that. He said, we're, we're concerned about your heart, these abnormalities in your heart. We're going to admit you. And it took some days for them to find out what to do. And I wasn't trying to be victorious. I was there, and I knew the body was with me. 
I was at peace. And I remember inquiring of the Lord one evening. I asked him, Lord, do you want me to die now? And the Lord assured me, not by saying anything, but by conveying his feeling and the feeling of the body. No, I don't want that. But you just consider his sovereignty, his wisdom. I allowed you to have a gout attack on both knees so you would go to the hospital so your heart condition could be identified before there was a catastrophe. So now you're going to be here for a week. Just be at rest. And, and I wasn't trying to do anything. It's effortless. Just let him be who he is in you. Amen. And you are there in the situation. Then the cardiologist said we need to Probably put in some stents. So, okay, let's go. And so this is going to be the course of our human life in varying degrees. But Paul says, we know. He didn't say we believe. We know all things work together for good. To those who love God. Now, please notice he didn't say those who love the Lord or those who love the Father. Here he said those who love God. The Father always cares for us with deep love and concern. He supplies all of our needs. He has a loving and forgiving heart. But God is also God in his absolute deity. And as God, he has the full right to do whatever he wills. And many of us can testify certain things that either he causes to happen or allows to happen. We just don't understand. We can pour out our feeling as we should. That's human. We can ask sincerely. But most of the time, he's silent. And he's hiding. But at the same time, although he's silent and hiding, he's dispensing himself. So something in us will rise up and say, God, I love you. And although I don't understand what is happening, I will vindicate you before the face of the enemy. I may not understand what is happening, but I believe you are true, faithful, righteous, and loving. This is the kind of believer whether they realize it or not, in whom Christ is living, is overcoming life again. So the first aspect of our overcoming is to overcome in our environment. 
in our situation. Then we read verses from 1 John that we overcome the world, the satanic system in all of its aspects. And that which is born of God, that is our regenerated human spirit, overcomes the world. And I restate what I said last night, to turn to our spirit, to be in our spirit, and exercise our spirit. These are actions of overcoming. Amen. The enemy's strategy is to draw us out of the spirit and to keep us out of the spirit when we're out of the spirit, we're the dust that the serpent eats. When we are in the spirit, we are in the high tower of the Lord's name. Amen. And we're in that realm where the enemy can't touch. Amen. And so we overcome the world through our regenerated spirit. And we overcome the world through the faith imparted into us. And then third, in Revelation 2 and 3, there's a particular kind of overcoming in the context of the church life to overcome all degradation negatively and to overcome by fulfilling God's purpose positively. So this is where we turn now to message two, God's eternal purpose Fulfilled by the recovered church. And the main point of the message will be very direct. Because the Bible is very direct. And the two aspects is, first, that God has an eternal purpose... Eternal because it was planned before time and space were created. In what we call eternity past. Before the foundation of the universe, God chose us to be holy. He predestinated us unto sonship. He graced us for his purpose, his determined intention. So the first section of the outline will consider this. And then the other matter is God's eternal purpose is fulfilled by the recovered church. God's eternal purpose will not and cannot be fulfilled by any religious organization, or entity that the Lord does not recognize as his church. God's purpose in this age, the scriptures bear this out, and history will eventually bear this out. God's eternal purpose is fulfilled by the recovered church. When I graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary in 1964, 
the Lord put me in a spiritual wilderness for two years as he began to operate based upon my prayer that his perfect will, not his permissive will, would be done in my life. But I had no idea what God's perfect will was. That is what God ordained eternally. God's permissive will is what he allows you to do. Sometimes as your children are growing up, you really, really don't want them to do this. But you have to give them some freedom, so you let them do it. But your heart isn't happy. Because you don't have, you're not raising a robot. It's not a clone. It's a developing human being with a will. You have to give increasing freedom. Eventually, they'll have complete freedom from you. And the Lord does not coerce us or force us. So he said, you have this choice. You can do what I permit. Or you can do what I desire. And by his mercy, I chose that. So based on that choice and that prayer, for two years, I began to reconsider everything. Everything that I had expected to do to be a minister in the denomination. Questioning the clergy laity system, the division, the impossibility of the spirit to operate in a religious system. And one Thursday night in June of 1966, in the main library in downtown Detroit, I concluded my study. Can I move in this direction? to this denomination, that denomination, and realized, no, they're all the same. And I made the decision, I will leave the entire system and follow the Lord's leading to go to California. Amen. So I went to California, ended up in San Francisco, and met the perfect will of God in the church in San Francisco. And I began to learn the truth that God's purpose and his perfect will will not be accomplished by those who are content to do what God allows. This is in the age of grace. He allows all kinds of things. God's eternal purpose will only be fulfilled by those who live for his will, pray for his will to be done, and then he will, in his way of shepherding, bring them into the recovered church and say, here is where I will fulfill my purpose. Now let's look into this matter. One, only the recovered church can fulfill God's eternal purpose. That's quite a statement. And we need to understand what we're saying. What do we mean by the recovered church? We use the word recovery to refer to something 
that God had ordained from the beginning, but which had been lost or damaged. And now God wants to return to what he had in the beginning. And we see this principle illustrated in Matthew 19, when some religious ones, they come to the Lord and say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? And then there's a discussion. And the question is asked, what did Moses do? He said, Moses said, you just sign a document and send her away. Then this is what the Lord said. That is because of the hardness of your heart. Because your heart is hardened toward her, Moses said, okay. Then the Lord said, in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. One man with a male body, contrary to our culture, and one woman with a female body, they are joined together to become one flesh. That is what it was in the beginning. Well, what was in the beginning concerning the church? The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. My church. And here the word church refers to the universal body of Christ, including all the believers through all ages. I will build it. Then in Matthew 18, he talks about a situation where one brother is trying to recover another brother who has caused some difficulty. He goes to him. If he won't listen, then go to him again with one or two others. If he won't listen, tell it to the church. He didn't say a church. He said, tell it to the church. And he must listen to the church. If he does not listen to the church, then this is how you should regard him. This is the Lord. The, not a. And then I'd like to here give you a little Bible math, a simple equation. Acts 14.23 plus Titus 1.5 equals Revelation 1.11. Okay, Acts 14.23. The apostles ordained elders in every church. Titus 1.5, Paul tells Titus, to appoint elders in every city, every church, every city. It must refer to the same one thing. 
Then in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord himself is speaking to John and says, what you see, write in a scroll and send it to the seven churches. Then Jesus names seven cities, indicating one, the church and the city are one unit. Then the Lord Jesus himself begins to speak. And then he says, to the church in Ephesus, right? To the church in Smyrna, right? Then at the end of Revelation, in chapter 22, the Lord Jesus again speaks to John and says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. The Lord's view is, there is my church, that is the universal church including all believers. Then there is the church. Then he makes very clear what he has ordained is that in any locality there should be the church, only one church, only one expression of the universal church. When the Lord sees this, he will say, my church. Amen. When I was a little boy, my parents took me to Sunday school in the Finnish Apostolic Lutheran Church. Not only Lutheran, Apostolic Lutheran. Not only Apostolic Lutheran, Finnish Apostolic Lutheran. And the Lord would look upon that and say, that is a sect. That is a division. That is a denomination. You prove it by taking a name other than my name. So then I became a Presbyterian. Why did I become a Presbyterian? Oh, don't think. I studied Calvin's writings and was just convinced of the truth of Reformed theology. No, my girlfriend Jane was a Presbyterian. <laughs> it was teenage affection that led me to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> then she abandoned me. And so I just was stranded there and I had made some new friends. So I stayed until the Lord led me out. But we want to make something very clear. We do not have a narrow sectarian attitude. We are here assembled in the meeting hall of the church in Atlanta. <coughs> Our understanding is the church in Atlanta includes all the believers in Atlanta. Wherever they are. We're not just saying just we, this smaller number, only we are. You're not. No. That's sectarian. We have returned to the proper standing. We did this 
in the Lord's recovery, first for the Lord, then second for all of you. So we'll have the Lord's table tomorrow morning. You come in, the, the, the ushers won't examine you. They won't ask you, are you a Baptist? Are you a Presbyterian? No one's going to interrogate you. God and Christ have received you. We receive you in the same way. This is just as much your church as it is ours. The difference is we decided not to stay in God's permissive will regarding the church, but to return to God's perfect will regarding the church that is one body expressed in one church in every locality. So the recovered church is referring to the recovery of this practice of the church life as seen in one elder, elders in every church, elders in every city, and the church equaling the city. If anyone is clear, it's the Lord Jesus. So the Lord now can speak to the church of God in Atlanta, Amen. to the church in Tallahassee, Amen. to the church in all these other places. And why we are here, I didn't know when I came why I was here. I just knew the Lord brought me here. But we're here to fulfill God's eternal purpose. Okay, one. Okay, we read point one. Now we can go into the details. A, the eternal purpose, the purpose of the ages, is the eternal plan of God that God made in eternity past. God himself is the initiation, the origination, and the sphere of his eternal purpose. In Ephesians 3, in verse 10, we read this. In order that now, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, the multifarious wisdom of God might be made known through the church. We continue with verse 11. According to the eternal purpose which he made in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church, in verse 10, is the eternal purpose in verse 11. And through the church, the body of Christ expressed in the local churches will express Christ and will be the means by which God will testify to the evil powers in the air, the victory concerning his son. Amen. And he will display his manifold, multifarious wisdom through the church. Amen. Stated briefly, God's eternal purpose is to have the church as the body of Christ to express him. This is what's on his heart. 
This is what the Lord gave himself for. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For her. Because he knew the church as the body of Christ will become his counterpart. He died for her. He knew no one loved him. But he loved her. He loved us. While we were dead in trespasses and sins, he loved us. He gave himself up for us. He died for us. So that he would have the church. In Hebrews 12, when it says, because of the joy set before him, the Lord endured the shame. I believe the joy set before him was his wife, was his counterpart, the church as his match. There was a joy set before him. And this is the church in God's eternal purpose. So God's purpose is to have the church, the body of Christ, through which he can express himself. The purpose of God in the universe is to produce a group of people who will be exactly the same as he is. This is the unique subject of God. This is why we're made in his image. A cat is not going to be the same as God. An orangutan is not going to be the same as God. A hippopotamus, on and on we go. We were created in his image. But according to Colossians 1.15, the image of God is Christ. So we were created in the image of Christ to be the same as Christ is, not in the Godhead. That's impossible but in life and nature, to express him. This is the unique subject of the Bible. In life, nature, image, appearance, radiance, glory, and outward expression, they will be the same as God. So now I'd like to prophesy concerning your future. Okay? This is what you will be in Christ. In life, nature, image, appearance, radiance, glory, and outward expression, you will be the same as God. Amen. All of us. God's our Father. We have his life in nature. Only he has the Godhead. And you put these together, these people together in oneness, that's the church as God's corporate expression. Two, God's purpose is accomplished by the divine life dispensed into his chosen and redeemed people. As God's life is wrought into his people, a metabolic reaction takes place within them that causes them to be transformed and become the same as God. If my older son was here on the platform with me, you would not need me to say or him to say that he is my son. He's very much like his father. And if you spend some time with us, this may surprise you. You will find out our sense of humor is very much the same. <laughs> I can't go into details, but some of the people with whom we're staying they learned last night, Ron Kangas has a sense of humor. 
Okay. And so th this is this is this is God's purpose. He created us in his image. Now we're being transformed into the same image. That's the Bible. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3:18 and and what do you need to do to be transformed? Oh, I'll tell you, this is really complicated. <laughs> you turn your heart to the Lord and just gaze on the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beholding and reflecting the glory of the Lord. Amen. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So I can say in all sincerity, this morning, what? What? What is it? The 30th. March 30th, 2019. There is more glory in the southeast than there was one year ago. Amen. Just keep doing what you're doing. I, I'm not a politician. I don't say nice things to win people's favor. I'm not a diplomat. I have to speak the truth. You're getting more and more radiant. Amen. Me too. All of us, little by little, it's happening. Three, God's eternal purpose is to work himself in his divine trinity into his chosen and redeemed people as their life, nature, and everything so that they may be, that should be two words, saturated with God. Ephesians 3.17, Christ is making his home in our heart. So I believe when we put our head on our pillow tonight, many of us, I hope all of us, would be able to say, Lord, there's more of you in my heart right now than when I got up this morning. Amen. Little by little, day by day. See, God's purpose in creating man was that man would express him and represent him. The eternal purpose of God is to have a corporate man to express him and represent him. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So the image of God is first to express him. But we need to represent God with his authority to deal with the enemy who is usurping the earth. The Lord blessed us and said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. The word subdue indicates conflict, subdue it. So we were created for this, to express God, then to represent him with his authority to deal with the enemy. The God-man Jesus, we sang the hymn. It was enjoyable to sing. He's the victor. We are, we will be the wife of the victorious Christ. And as I mentioned last night, he will execute his victory through us. So we express him and represent him. D, God saved us and called us 
with a holy calling according to his own purpose and grace. When I was saved in 1955, I had no idea why, why this happened. It took me a long time. God saved you according to his purpose. He wanted you to participate in the fulfillment of his purpose. That's why he created you. That's why he saved you. That's why you're here. If he didn't need you, he wouldn't have brought you here. You may say, I'm just a teenager. What do you mean just a teenager? How wonderful. You're not too young to express him and to represent him where you are. I love this verse. God saved us according to his own purpose. But Paul mentions the word purpose again in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And he's assuring Timothy that in contrast to the trend, Timothy is closely following Paul in a number of ways. And he says, you have closely followed my teaching and my purpose. My purpose. Timothy, you have closely followed my purpose. But in 1.9, he spoke of God's own purpose. But there are not two purposes. What happened to Paul needs to happen to us and in us. Paul could say, my purpose, because God's purpose had become his purpose for living. And God's purpose was embodied, expressed, and lived out in Paul. And Timothy knew this. He knew that when he followed Paul's purpose, he was following God's purpose. Because here was a man fully living for God's purpose and for no other reason. It wasn't a theory. It was embodied. It was lived out. It was expressed. Now, we owe so much to the ministries of Watchman and Witness Lee, but we are not a Neite or Leite denomination. We have only one name, the name of the Lord Jesus. But Paul also told Timothy in 1 Timothy, continue in the things which you have learned. Remembering from those you have learned them. I never met Brother Nee, but you can tell from his writings and the testimony of his life. God's purpose was his purpose. Among, along with many others, I had the privilege and the honor of serving with Brother Lee, and I can testify I'm not ashamed to say I closely follow his purpose in the sense that it's God's purpose lived out unto the end. I saw him in his hospital room not long before he went to be with the Lord. And I spoke to him. But many, what I had told him before, and a number of us were meeting with him, and he asked each one of us, to just speak to him what was in our heart. 
concerning how we would go on when he's gone. And I said again to him, Brother Lee, we will teach these things. We will write these things. We will live these things until we meet the Lord. Amen. And so the Lord would like God's purpose not to remain an abstraction, but to become the purpose of our living. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And by his grace, we are fulfilling these conditions. You know you are. You can honestly testify of this. You can come to the mic and testify of this to the glory of God. I love God. And I've been called according to his purpose. Everything I do is related to his purpose. All the major decisions I make are made according to his purpose. I made another major decision three years ago. Happily, joyfully, lovingly, with the realization, this is 100% for your purpose. And Paul is the pattern for all of us. Now the subpoints under D. We need to view salvation from God's perspective. The purpose of God's salvation is for his created and redeemed ones to have the life of the Son and be conformed to the image of his Son so that the Son would be the firstborn among many brothers. Salvation involves our being saved from a human life that is meaningless. What, what is salvation? Not just salvation from eternal perdition. Saved from a meaningless human life. I wish I could have a personal conversation with Bill Gates. I'd like to say, Mr. Gates, or if you let me say, Bill, I am much richer than you are. Amen. Or maybe I should talk to the owner of Amazon. Maybe the richest man on earth. I am richer than you are. Because you have all this money. I and my fellow believers have the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen. And let me be faithful to you as a fellow human being whom I love. Your whole life is meaningless. If you continue where you're going, when you reach the end, you will realize it was all vanity of vanities. But that's not the way I'm going to end. That's not the way we're going to end. We're going to end with song of songs. I really mean this. I don't envy the wealthy. I don't envy the famous. I can't bear it for you to listen to the talking heads. It's just meaningless jabber, meaningless talk from an empty person. And we are ordinary human beings, but we've been saved into the meaning of the universe. 
The gospel of God saves us out of a human life that is without meaning into the meaning of the universe. Revelation 4.11. All things were created because of God's will. That's why the universe exists. And we've been saved for that. God created a man who had great meaning and purpose. But man fell and the meaning of human life was lost. So Solomon, my, if you combine the, the number of wives and concubines together, he had a thousand. What, what kind of person is this? And incredible wealth. And at a certain point, he writes, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. May the Lord have mercy on all of our young people and all the young adults to save you from a meaningless life. A meaningless life. A life of vanity. And little C, with his salvation, God rescues us and brings us back to our original purpose, which is the meaning of the universe. Now we turn to see that God's purpose is fulfilled by the recovered church. As a sign, the church in Philadelphia prefigures the recovered church. In other words, it's a picture of what the recovered church would be. And the Lord in the 19th century had the re a recovery of the church with the brethren in Ireland and the UK. They forsook their religious system. They gave up any other name. In England, that's a hierarchical society. They gave up their prestige. Don't call me sir. Don't call me lady. I'm just a brother. They met in the Lord's name. They honored the Lord's word. But they didn't know life, and they divided again and again. But the Lord had to continue to have the recovery of the church. So he went to China. Amen. He went to China because he couldn't get through in this part of the country yet. He went by way of China. And raised up Brother Ni, nee, and raised up Brother Lee and so many others. And the heavens were opened. And in 1922, 97 years ago, it was the first Lord's Table meeting, the recovery of the local church. And it was God's way to establish that in mainland China. Then to use the world situation to transplant it to Taiwan for development. But then the Lord's strategy was to bring that recovery to the United States to spread throughout the whole world. And what I'll say is very blunt, but it's a sad thing. Many of the theologians and the preachers and the Bible teachers would not accept the ministry from a Chinese man from Chifu because he was Chinese. If it had been a European descendant educated at Harvard or Princeton or Yale, they would say yes. How sad 
that a form of racism would blind people. Why wouldn't you humble yourself? Why don't, why, don't you, why don't you humble yourself and receive supply from anyone the Lord chooses, Amen. of any race, of any culture? Amen. Who and what do you think you are? That you're the one who doles out things. You don't need anybody else. That's not the body of Christ. The Lord sent the gospel through missionaries who sacrificed to China, brought the word of God to them. Then he reciprocated by bringing what he recovered to China here. This is the body. Amen. I'm not ashamed to say that the man I served with was a little China man from Chi Fu. We're in the one new man. Amen. All the divisions by race and culture, they have been terminated. Amen. We're in the real reality, the real oneness of the body of Christ. Amen. And the church in Philadelphia, there in the first century, is a prophetic picture of this. And actually, the church, the recovered church, is very simple. And it's comprised of ordinary people. No one's a hero. No one's a giant. No one is spectacular. But look at the subpoints of what it is. The church in Philadelphia prophetically depicts the church of brotherly love. Okay, we're all brothers. Whether you're male brother or female brother, we're all brothers. And we have the same love for one another. So there's no bias. There's no preference. There's no selectivity. We just spontaneously love you because you're born of God. Amen. We don't care where you come from, what your background is, what your social class is, your culture, your nationality, or race. And you know what it is, many of you, to be rejected, to be discriminated against. But now you can sense this is real. This is real. This is genuine. This is an unbiased love. Simply because we're all born from the same source. The God of love is our father. And so you didn't have to work hard to love your siblings. Even though you might have fought with them and had different kinds of things. You just love your family. It's the same effortless love. And so we're all on the same level here in Philadelphia. There's no clergy. So there's no laity. The fact that I minister the word with others, that doesn't put me in another category. I follow the apostle who got the revelation. How did he call himself? I, John, your brother and your companion in tribulation in the kingdom and the endurance in Jesus. I'm just Ron, your brother. Amen. Believe me, in between meetings, you can talk to me without hyperventilating. <laughs> right? You won't faint. I'm just... Brother, for many of you, old enough to be your grandpa, at least old enough to be your dad. And, and I'm not afraid of you either. Okay? This is, this is for real. Then we, we have a, a beautiful development of this matter of love in section B. We know that we have passed out of death into life 
because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. So we have passed out of death into life through regeneration. And the evidence is we love the brothers. The divine life is a life that loves the brothers. One time for a couple of days, the elders in Anaheim, I'm not an elder, but I know about this through their sharing. We're up in the mountains having a time of fellowship and prayer. And Brother Andrew was to join them. And they asked Brother Lee, who was with Brother Lee at the, Brother Andrew, they asked him, who was with Brother Lee at the time, did Brother Lee have a word for them? And no doubt they were expecting it profound word about the highest truth, the deepest experiences. And so Andrew faithfully spoke the three sentences. This was his word. Brothers, you must love one another. Your wives should love one another. And you should love one another's children. This is, these are the leading brothers. And this is what the Lord wants to have. You love one another. And your wives, it's not easy to be married to a brother, working, serving full time, or being a leading one. Oh, for the sisters to love one another. That is beautiful. When they don't, there is deep pain in the body because the sisters are deeper than brothers. They're more experiential than brothers. Their deep function, their hidden function is to be a channel of life. And when there's discord among them, the body suffers. And then to love one another's children, that means you go beyond natural affection for your own children, which is poisoned. I remember one day in Irving, Texas, and all my kids were in school, and there was an ice storm during the day. And I was very concerned about the safety of my children, especially one old enough to drive home in a car. So I prayed for them to be safe. But the Lord in me wasn't satisfied. So then he said, pray for the children of all the saints to be safe. But he still wasn't satisfied. Then he said, pray for all the children in the city to be safe. It's not a small thing. I don't know if our brother Dave Higgins, I think he's been with the Lord at least 10 years. He was the overseer that's full-time training in Anaheim. He had four daughters and no sons, just sons-in-law. But he could testify and we can testify of him. All the trainees were children, his children. He loved the children of the saints the same as he loved his own. This is the recovered church. So the two, the love the love of God toward the brothers is a strong evidence that we have passed out of death into life. Faith in the Lord, this is 2A, faith in the Lord 
is, is the way for us to pass out of death into life. Love toward the brothers is the evidence that we have passed out of death into life. So when you sense in yourself a shortage of love for a certain one, what you need is to turn to the Lord and open to him for him to dispense life into you. And that life spontaneously will be manifested as love. Three, I love this verse. In this we know love, that he laid down his life on our behalf. And we ought to lay down our lives on behalf of the brothers. And the word for life is suke, the soul life. Okay, in this we know love. How do we know the Lord loves you? He laid down his life for you. Now he's living again in us. We ought to lay down our lives on behalf of the brothers. One aspect of the God-ordained way and one factor for the new revival will be shepherding and mutuality. All of us are sheep and all of us are shepherds. But I've been learning to really care for the saints and to shepherd them. You have to lay down your life for them. You don't do this out of obligation. I'm a leading one. This is a role definition. This is what I have to do. No. You do this because you're a brother, a member of the body. Christ is living in you. You love this brother. You love this sister. There's the need right now for fellowship. So you lay down your soul life for this brother. This is the recovered church. Small a, a love for the brothers is a willingness to lay ourselves aside to serve them. Remember last night I talked about the Lord serving us. We cannot serve unless we allow him to serve us. He served us by laying down his life for us. Now he lives in us and we do the same. This is the essence of the New Testament ministry. The brothers and their spouses who support them take this way to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters simply because we love them. We're not martyrs. We're not heroes. We're just brothers. What a remarkable church life this is. To love the brothers is to be willing to deny oneself for the perfection of others and to have a heart that is willing to lay down one's own life for his brothers. See, one outstanding feature of the church in Philadelphia is that she keeps the Lord's word. And this characterizes the recovered church. We don't have any creed. We don't follow any catechism, although some of us are familiar with them. We're not bound by traditional systematic theology. We hold fast to the pure word of God. We study it. We sing it. We pray it. We eat it. 
Yes, like Jeremiah 15, 16, your words found and I ate them. And your word became to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. One, according to history, no other Christians have kept the Lord's word as strictly as the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia, the recovered church, does not care for tradition. She cares for the word of God. It will be necessary for me in the coming months to write an article for affirmation and critique about a book written by perhaps the most popular Bible teacher in this country. I don't want to give his name. The love should cover him. He is a pastor teacher of a huge Christian group. He's published at least 150 books. He has a radio program, a TV program. He's well paid. His basic salary is $160,000 a year. His total value is $12 million. He's highly regarded for all of his books of Bible study. And I appreciate his love for the word. But he wrote a book on Revelation 2 and 3 that is full of errors. Not heresy, errors. And one thing he says was, oh, the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3. That's the same as in 1 John 5. Every believer is an overcomer. So now he misleads millions of people, misled. And so this is affirmation and critique. So in this case, it'll be critique <laughs> and affirmation. Critique of the error and affirmation of the truth. Because you are really still governed by tradition. But brothers like Watchman E and Witness Lee, they were severely dealt with and trained by the Lord and were broken under his hand and reconstituted so that their heart and spirit and mind and soul were pure. And they received light from the Lord and gave us the pure word of God. Whenever I have an opportunity to check out a new commentary on the book of Revelation, I see what the book says about two things. I go to chapter 12 about who is the man-child. If they say the woman is Mary, the man-child is Jesus, or the woman is Israel, the man-child is Jesus, I realize it's an error. Then I go to chapter 21 about the New Jerusalem. If they, think, if they say it's heaven or it's a material city, I realize the book is not trustworthy. In 1978, Livingstream published Brother Nee's book, The Glorious Church. I remember the meeting in which a brother read from the manuscript of the interpretation of the man-child in Revelation 12. And we were all in awe when we read, the, when we heard those words and our spirit realized this is the truth. This is the corporate overcomer. The bright woman is the totality of the believers from the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
We need a fresh realization of how blessed we are to be under the pure ministry of the word. And we just hold it. D, the church in Philadelphia keeps the Lord's word with the little power that she has. The Lord says you have a little power. So don't let the enemy make you feel worthless because you have a little power. We all have a little power. Realizing this allows the Lord to be the power in us. We're just ordinary believers. Just like we're ordinary persons. And we have a little power. And the Lord is very content. Just use the little power you have. When you come to prophesy, you don't have to give an eloquent message. Just speak, even if English is your second language. If you want to speak in another language, please come and speak in Spanish. Speak in Russian. We have an interpreter for you. Please don't deprive us because you need to speak in Spanish. We want to draw your spirit out. We're all the same. We have a little power. We should not regard the church in Philadelphia as being strong, powerful, and prevailing. The Lord Jesus said she had a little power. What pleases the Lord is not that we are strong, but that we use our little power to do the best we can. Very reasonable. I gave you this much. It's a little power. Just do your best. You don't have to wait until you're as mature as Brother Lee was. No one's, that's unprecedented. No one's going to reach that level. We don't have that portion. Just come as you are right now. Only you have your portion. Okay, you're a teenager. You're brand new here. Weren't you touched by the brother last night? I think he's from Birmingham. We just said, now I realize what it means, this and that. So refreshing. E, in Revelation 3.8, the Lord says that the church in Philadelphia has not denied his name. That means we won't take another name. A denomination means to take a name. So as soon as you say you're a Baptist, you have denied the Lord's name. That's just a fact. But the church in Atlanta, that's not a name. That's a description. It's like the moon. That's really not the name. It's moon wherever it is. The Lord's word is his expression. And the Lord's name is the Lord himself. The recovered church not only has returned in a full way to the Lord's word, but also has abandoned all names other than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we hold to this. We don't have a name. Local church is not our name. Maybe for legality to incorporate, you have to have something. That's just to meet the government's requirement. We don't have a name. The only name here is Jesus. Amen. We don't meet in the name of Watchman Nee, not in the name of Witness Lee, certainly not in the name of Ron Kangas or any other co-worker. We're here gathered into the name of the Lord Jesus. The return to the pure word from all heresies and traditions and the exaltation of the Lord's name by abandoning every other name are the most inspiring
testimony in the recovered church. And it's this recovered church that has little power, that keeps the Lord's word, that does not deny his name, that is filled with love. This is the church through which the Lord can finally fulfill his purpose. So now we have close to 20 minutes for sharing. So with the mics, please be brought forth. And two brothers will open up, one minute each.